Hello, I'm Stuart Devine, and welcome to It's Not All Bad. To all the listeners out there, I have this wonderful guest. His name is Ardian Maloku. When you listen to Ardian, yes, you would detect an accent. He is a former refugee from Kosovo, and we're going to talk about that as well. But before we get to that, Ardian, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stuart. Much appreciated. It's an honor to be here. Oh, it's great. You know, it's always great. I've known Ardian for quite a long time right now. Now, Ardian, listen, I've known you. You're drinking all kinds of coffee. You're out of hand. Now you're, you know, you're all buffed up. What's that all about? Why are you looking so good nowadays? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I would agree with you about looking all good, but um, I have definitely tried to keep up my fitness these last two years. Like I've, I've had to um, work out more than ever before, and I, I've lost a few pounds here and there. Let's just, let's just put it that way. Okay, I can tell because like, I started looking at you and I said, this is really incredible. Uh-huh. Believe me, listeners out there, I remember Artyom when we would share coffee in uh, certain locations. And I said, this guy, he's coming here, he's looking good. He's enjoyed his donuts for all of his life. Now, you would <laughs> never even know that. I mean, he must be eating kale and pine cones on the weekends just to stay fit. So that's really uh, great. <laughs> I, I do like kale. Nah, no pine cones, but kale is good. <laughs> okay, well, that's okay. A lot of roughage on the pine cones, so be very careful with that. Arden, uh, as you know, we're going to talk about the whole refugee thing, but you worked for a local city government in Colorado. That was interesting. What was that like um, when you first started out there? Uh, that, that was, without a doubt, one of the best professional experiences that I've, that I've had. I was able to get that job and the I worked for the Denver Police Department as I started there as a fingerprint technician. Um, I got a lot of wonderful training there, um, learned about the administrative side of the police world at the Denver Police Headquarters. And then I was able to promote to an operational supervisor uh, shortly after there. And I was able to make a a lot of um, changes there, like positive changes in terms of um, like team building and... um, Oh, that's good. That's good. So it clearly you you thought about now some of those changes I've heard from people that know you back in those days, a lot of it had to do with interpersonal skills that you brought to bear in the workplace. So whatever sort of guided you in the direction to be more interpersonal skills focused, if you will, emotional intelligence, as opposed to just being strictly a technocrat. Any workplace that that I that I've been to ever in the past, I, I always go in there with a mindset of okay, I'm always looking for the positives in the place, but then I'm always looking for things that uh, could be better, could be made better. Well, that's good. Again, for the listeners, we are going to get into the refugee situation because you did come over uh, a while back when you're in your teens. Now you're in your early thirty somethings. And what university did you graduate from, and what was your major? Uh, I graduated from uh, the University of Colorado at Denver, and my major was political science. Um, I graduated with my master's degree in um, 2018, May of 2018. Excellent political science. And the interesting part, like you and so many other graduates too, you were able to do all of that as well as work full-time and have a family. I think that's pretty good and very admirable. Why did you choose political science for your major? I've always been interested in the world of like international relations, um, diplomacy, foreign relations, those types of things. Um, again, as you mentioned before, um, I, I grew up in a place where political tensions were always high and the foreign policy of the major global superpowers was always like discussed. It was like very common 
to hear those things, especially the U.S. foreign policy. So I was always interested in that. It was always like a dream of mine to join the Foreign Service and, and be an American diplomat. And Were you one of the first people in your family that went to college? My dad had some college education, but it was more like an associate's degree. Um, so I would, I'm definitely the first person to go and get like a bachelor's degree and then a master's degree. Uh, but uh, my, my father had like an associate's degree uh, in, in teaching and that was like sufficient for him to teach. Going back again, your name is Ardian Maloku. So your country of birth was where? A country of birth is Kosovo. Uh, it wasn't Kosovo when I was born. It used to be known as Yugoslavia back then, but uh, Kosovo has been an ind- independent country since um, 2008. Excellent. And the language you speak is? Uh, uh, I speak Albanian and English. Those are the only two. Excellent. And Artie Maloku, now I know I'm saying that wrong. You and I love joking about it, but okay. Now in Albanian, how would you say Artie Maloku? <laughs> It's the correct pronunciation would be Ardian Maloku. Oh, Ardian Maloku. Okay. How's it go? What what was that, Ardian? Ardian Maloku. Okay. I won't butcher that up anymore, but I imagine there may be one or two listeners out there that may, one, be from Albania. Number two, even if they're not, they learn to speak Albanian and they're probably saying, Stuart, you're the host and you're butchering this guy's name. So, now, the, the, this episode name was called Making It Out, Not Making Out. Now, you agreed that it was a nice sort of play on words. There were issues in Kosovo uh, during those times, and I, I don't want to make it too emotional, but can you explain what was going on and how old were you and why did your family try to make it out? Absolutely. And uh, I do like your creativity. You're always very creative in almost everything. So I, I do like the, the, the title there. Um, in, in, Co- in what is Kosovo now, it used to be Yugoslavia. And the, the, issue, the issues in Yugoslavia were you had many ethnic groups, like different ethnic groups. So you have the ethnic Albanians, you have the Serbs, you have the Croats, the Bosnians, different ethnic groups. And they were all having to live in kind of like a joint federation of, of little tiny states and um, political changes pretty much uh, happened and one central state wanted to like exert power over the other ones and over other ethnicities and then that led to conflict and then everyone's like okay we don't want to be a part of this union anymore we all want our own thing and then Serbia or the Serbian the president of Yugoslavia at the time he was uh, he was a Serb and he wanted to um have control over all these other ethnicities and make Serbia the, the central power in Yugoslavia. And then that created conflict, uh, starting with Slovenia. They broke away and then Croatia broke away. Then there was a bloody war in Bosnia. And then Kosovo was kind of like the last piece of that uh, former Yugoslavia puzzle. And that's where I came in. I was in seventh grade back in 1999. So I was in middle school and... Um, the, the war happened. Um, we were civilians. We were attacked um, simply because you belong to a different ethnic groups. It was it was like territorial control. Two ethnic groups. You had the Albanians and the Serbs fighting one another. The U.S. military intervened. I was actually on the ground uh, when the the NATO intervention took place against Serbian targets in 1999. Uh, and I am very thankful for U.S. foreign policy starting back then when I was a little kid 
because it was U.S. foreign policy that created some space for us to breathe and be able to get out. We had to leave everything behind, walk on the hills for three days and three nights in cold, blistering weather, sleeping in the mountains, bullets just flying everywhere, houses being blown up, and we made it out of there. At, at that time, Ardian, how old were you? Uh, I was 12. 12 years old. And your family, you had to leave. Uh, was the fighting of such violence that your father and mother felt compelled you had to leave because possibly you wouldn't have survived? Oh, there, there were only two choices. Uh, you leave or you get slaughtered and you die. There, there was no other option. Uh, the what was even more interesting is that a lot of people didn't even have the chance to leave. We, we didn't even have the chance to leave for a while. So we were kind of like shelled in into place and just easy targets for easy killing. Um, I am always thankful. And one of the reasons I wanted to join foreign service is because we, I, I am and my family is we're all forever thankful to U.S. foreign policy and U.S. military for intervening and creating that opportunity for us to even just make it through those hills. Because a lot of people didn't even make it through those hills to go into the neighboring country of Macedonia. Um, they were just not lucky. Uh, we had, when we left, we had to carry bodies, like some dead bodies and just bury them quick and then move on because you didn't have time for anything else. Yeah, I can imagine the trauma that you experienced as well as your mom and dad too, because I mean, uh, you just mentioned you had to leave everything behind, whatever the possessions were, except what you could carry on your persons. And then when you crossed over and you were able to leave that territory, did you go into a refugee camp? Uh, we stayed in Macedonia. We had some relatives um, there. My, my, my father had some relatives there. So we stayed with them for a while and the war was going on still in Kosovo. And we had no idea how long it was going to last. My parents decided that America was a good place to move and start a new life. And the way to do that was to register in one of those refugee camps. We stayed in a refugee camp for about three to four months. And then we applied for asylum. Um, we were lucky that the U.S. Embassy there issued a, granted us that asylum and allowed us to come here. We were sponsored by a church here in Denver, Colorado. That's how our journey to America started. What was it like in the refugee camps? Um, I can tell you that uh, from one of my assignments I've had overseas in a particular country uh, in the Middle East, refugee camps, they're not the uh, local Boy Scout camps. What was it like when you were there? You, you always see things differently in a different age group. So as a child, you see things differently. As an adult, you see things differently. Um, refugee camps are what you kind of see and hear on TV, except they're, sometimes they could be worse. So all you're doing is pretty much is living in this designated area, uh, open space, and all you have is a bunch of tents that are set up, and the tent is your house, your temporary house that you live in. So you have a little bed in there, you have a tent in this open space for an X amount of time. It's, it's not pleasant. It is not at all pleasant. Um, I, I, I wish that, I, I don't wish that on, on anyone ever. Well, in terms of, I can imagine it's not like you had some fast food place right around the corner that you can go. Yeah, I don't I don't remember any McDonald's or Burger King being around the corner. <laughs> so um, it, it was a lot of like uh, canned food, like sardines and, and stuff. And I do not ever wish 
for anyone to ever have to live in a refugee camp. Well, I can imagine that too. Uh, I don't know for your birthday, Ardina, I was going to actually send you a box of sardines, but now that you've mentioned <laughs> that to me, uh, I'm going to have to figure out what to do with those hundred cans of sardines. I, I guess I'll send you the crackers instead of the sardines. What do you think about that? Funny thing is, uh, believe it or not, this might sound strange, but I, I do like sardines. I actually don't mind them. Why am I not surprised? <laughs> I can just see you in the camp right there saying, oh, by the way, can I have some more of those sardines? <laughs> and everybody around you is going, what's wrong with this young man? Is he nuts? I, I just wanted to um, ask you, once you came to the States, a, a religious group sponsored you. However, I believe you stayed in a family that was not the traditional family. Can you explain that? When we first came here, there was actually a refugee service in um, in Colorado here that, that was taking refugees in. And actually, for the first two weeks, uh, we stayed with an American family in uh, Broomfield. Uh, we stayed like in their home. They actually brought us into their home and they were like some of the nicest people uh, ever. Uh, but then the way it worked is that a church that sponsored you, they had to find... Um, they found sponsors, people that can uh, show you the way around, people that can help you settle into your new home and this and that. For for us, um, this was like a, a new a, a new thing. Uh, we, we had a, a gay couple that uh, turned out to be our sponsors uh, when we first came to the states, and that was that was something new for us. It was like a new um, a new experience because I, I grew up in a very small conservative town and you don't hear anything about like gay people you don't have you don't have that so it was like a, a big adjustment for us to make uh just to be able to go from a small town in kosovo to a big uh, liberal city like denver and then having a, a gay couple uh being your sponsors here we are t some 22 years later and uh, we're still good friends with both both of them we've stayed in contact with them and we've, we've been we've always been very appreciative of them and we were able to to learn to appreciate things and people and diversity uh, that, that's the greatest experience in america that you don't get in a lot of places is the value of diversity you get exposed to a variety of cultures a variety of people a variety of things and you can always um Built from that, you can definitely uh, strengthen your character by drawing from different experiences from 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 others. Uh, that's really interesting, and I'm glad you mentioned that. One of the greatest things about many Western democracies, but most importantly about the U.S., is the diversity we have. Now, granted, we know that there are some who believe that diversity is a destruction to a certain society, but civil society should welcome that. And I can imagine you coming from a place small extremely conservative, uh, especially when it turns in, uh, talks about LGBTQ issues and gay rights. It's like, boom. And now the very family that's taking you in and helping to get you settled is a gay couple. And I imagine this was like, this can, is this really happening? And they do care and they have the capacity to love just like anyone else. So when you mention this strength that America has in diversity and LGBTQ or whether it has to be with ethnicity, et cetera, you're absolutely right. That is a strength. Now, some various issues um, in our country, but we are finally having a deep conversation about that. And as a refugee, do you have the feeling that there is acceptance of refugees that are coming from war-torn environments, or is this kind of a 
oh, guess what? Refugee, they just want something. Uh, they're not really legitimate uh, people in need, et cetera. What have been some of your different experiences listening to other people? I can say with full certainty and without any without any shadow of a doubt in my mind that the American people are the most welcoming people in the world. Um, it's just, I, I believe that with all my heart and soul, without a shadow of a doubt, the American people are some of the kindest, most generous, most welcoming people anywhere in the world. But then again, there's elements in society out there that um, see that as a weakness. They're like, okay, refugee, they're, they're not worthy. You know, they, 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 they can look at you as someone that they always have to be like at a certain level below. They should not like rise to this level or, or that level. So throughout my life and throughout my career, not just because I've been a refugee, but simply because I have an accent and things like that, there's there's always this element where you always have to go above and beyond to prove your yourself, to prove your Americanism, to prove this and that. And uh, that is definitely something that as I continue forward, that's something that I'm going to work hard in wherever I go and whatever working environment I go to, to change those those mindsets and those things and say, hey, diversity is a good thing. People from different backgrounds can actually bring things to the table. They can actually contribute. And that is the vision of that is the vision of America. Going back to even some of the to the founders of this country, like like our second U.S. president, John Adams, and uh, who, who I personally like admire his leadership and stuff, they they, they created a, a constitution that wanted to have diversity in there. And it, it, it's taken us some time to get there. And we have a lot of work to do to go to go ahead. But the foundation is there. I'm really glad that you mentioned that about the diversity angle. It is true that we know that George Washington would be shocked at the level of diversity that we have in the United States, shocked and possibly disgusted by it because they really didn't intend for people such as you or myself or many others or even uh, women to be able to have certain rights or gay people or transgender. This is true. However, you mentioned the Constitution. What a living document that Constitution is. In any country that has a Constitution where it is a living document that promotes the welfare of its citizens and the harmony of its citizens and the right to happiness and peace for its citizens. Granted, they rarely will reach that because we're human beings with our foibles, but that is a goal that allows a living constitution to achieve. And that's what ours is. Now it's interesting. I'm glad you brought this up and I'm just going to digress. Have you ever noticed that uh, you sometimes see these big flags that are being flown by people in whether it's in trucks or, or in cases on boats and things like that. And it's just these big American flags. That is truly impressive. That's their way of demonstrating to people that I'm proud to be an American that has nothing to do with a race. An American is a nationality. That's bottom line. However, sometimes we have to make sure that as we're flying that flag, the flag has a meaning behind it. And the flag's meaning is not individuality per se. The flag's meaning is treating thoughtfulness and kindness as weakness. The flag is about actually unity and taking care of of your brother and sister, if you will, that lives across the street in times of need and danger and natural disaster and even man-made disasters. So sometimes that message gets lost when you see these wonderful red, white, and blue flags that are being flown. So that's why when you mentioned this part about the idea that this constitution, it has so many great things in it, especially when it starts out with 
we the people, which includes Artie Maloku and your family as you came across as refugees. Now, with that, I'm going to go on and segue into now, Artie, what's your career like now? I've been fortunate enough through great mentors. I've been fortunate enough to finally achieve what I've always wanted to do in, in, in terms of a career. I've been able to join the Foreign Service as of uh, January 11th of this year, 2021. Um, I've always wanted, that was the ultimate career goal for me. That's what I went to school for. That's what I always dreamed of doing. Uh, so as of January 11th to 2021, I was sworn into Foreign Service, and uh, I'm still going through some training. As you mentioned earlier, uh, that somebody like me, coming from a background that we just discussed, has the opportunity to be working for the the, the elite federal agency. Indeed, I especially for you and your family. Did you ever think? I mean, can you imagine when you were even say 20 years old? You're you know you're in college, you're you're getting your degree, and you're thinking what? Represented the United States as a as a diplomat, it's uh, it's almost unreal. So I can imagine a person coming from a war torn environment, twelve, thirteen years old with family, coming to the states. By the way, did you speak English at that time? Uh, no, I I did not speak a word of English when I came to the United States, which was back in September of nineteen ninety nine. Uh, I, I did not speak a word of English. Did you find it really complicated language when you initially start learning it? Well, I, I think I think when you're younger, you learn a lot quicker and a lot faster. So learning English for me then was easier. I think it would have been a lot more difficult if I had to learn it now. Um, but it took me about six months, I think, to have a good enough level of English to be able to write, to write, read, and speak and hold conversations and be able to attend regular classes in high school and those things. Six months? Six months. I can barely speak English now. This is incredible. <laughs> Six months. Uh, this is wild. When you first went to your school at that age and you started learning, how did the other students interact with you? It, it was a big shock for me, as I told you. I mean, everything, going from a small town, like I said, that I grew up in, in Kosovo, to going to a big city like Denver, and going to one of the public schools in Denver, which had thousands of students, I, it was it was a big school. Um, it was just big. I mean, just confusion. Um, it, it took a while to to really adapt, and and I mean, you, you just go in with a brand new group of people that you don't really have anything in common. You can't even speak and communicate to them. Um, I remember when I showed up for my first day, they had to find another student in there that <laughs> that spoke Albanian, and uh, she was nice enough to um, to kind of like orient me where to go and stuff. But you still feel lost. I mean, you're just thrown into a world where you just don't know anything about. You can't speak, you can't communicate, so then you have to find ways to to maneuver around that and adapt and be resilient and and make it through. Then at some point. I don't know if it was maybe a year after you were in school, but you did have a comfort zone at some point. When do you think that was? A year, six months, eight months? When do you think that uh, transition happened? I think uh, I didn't get a comfort zone actually until like my junior year in high school, uh, to be honest. So it took it took a little over two years for me to really feel like, okay, now I belong in the school. I'm, I'm good here. I know my way around. 
I can actually help people around now here. And I did some teaching. I remember doing like a taking like a teaching assistant for as one of my classes and feeling all special and important that I was able to help my teachers grade papers and things like that. I was like, oh man, this is a big deal. And then I remember getting my first kind of part-time job for the summer through uh, an internship at um, through my through my high school because uh, you have to be at least 16 to work. But uh, I was able to actually start working when I was 14. And I just, I worked for about a month at a golf course. And I remember getting my first paycheck. It was like $57, I think, or something like that. And that was like the biggest probably one of the happiest days of my life i was like oh my goodness i was like i have 57 dollars of my own money i was like what i'm rich i was like what can i what, what how am i going to spend this money so and i yeah I, i've actually saved the first paycheck i, I have it somewhere in the basement uh, uh that, that 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 was one of the the happiest days that that i can remember <laughs> that is i mean i i can imagine i imagine the second paycheck you probably went out to some some fast food place and you know probably blew 25 percent <laughs> on milkshakes and stuff i i that is a while so when you were in your senior year like you said you started feeling comfortable junior year in high school senior year comes around yeah. you're fully into it you you i'm assuming you had friends you did you make friends yeah, yeah, yeah. By my senior year, um, I had started to really adapt into the, the way of life, the high school way of life. And the last semester of my high school was definitely one of the easiest and most laid back semesters that I can ever remember. Um, I had like a half schedule. Uh, I was helping out with things. I had completed pretty much all my requirements to graduate. Uh, I was looking at college. I was looking to see what I want to do. I had people to talk to. It was it was one of the most laid back and relaxed times. Uh, very different from my freshman and sophomore year. Uh, those I was like so stressed and sad and lost and confused. What contributed to that that sadness and confusion? Was it because of the language barrier that you're still, or the cultural issues? The language barrier was big. Um, just the whole environment. Like you don't know anyone. You don't have a friend. You all the friends that you had growing up. Uh, they're they're all gone. Everything that you knew was gone. You have the trauma of the war, and you know a lot of people don't understand. But the trauma of the war that never really goes away. You, you can keep burying it deeper and deeper in there, but it's it's always there. Uh, when you see like people being killed, and you you you, you remember bullets flying around and uh, houses being blown up and that kind of stuff. Th those things never really go away. I mean, you know, with time, you, you forget them and you bear them deeper and deeper in there somewhere. It's interesting because you've always, every, ever since I've met you, of course, from the very first time I met you, you've always been a person of optimism and encouragement and thoughtfulness. Uh, it's just a part of who you are. And that's why people like you, of course. Now, you have spoken to many people about your journey and your yes. success. And you've even offered guidance to people who are considering moving possibly into even the U.S. Foreign Service. But why do you do that? Why do you encourage others and speak positive language like that? Well, I, I don't want to put you on the spot on your own show here, but um, I, I'm just going to throw this out there. It's because of you. Uh, you've been a great mentor to me, and you were someone that believed in someone like me you know knowing my background and knowing everything about me and everything like that that i could make it there 
and you guided and counseled me through there. I've always enjoyed helping people. It's just that seeing what you've done for me, I'm like, I have to make sure that I continue that kind of tradition and pass that on to, to others. And personally for me, being able to help somebody, I mean, there's there's no bigger reward for me than to be able to make somebody's day better or to be able to offer assistance to someone. And sometimes people wonder, they they, they ask me, they're like, okay, why, why are you doing that? Uh, as if there's supposed to be some sort of uh, ulterior motive or some, some hidden agenda there. And I'm like, no, that's just the thing to do. That's that's a world that I, I want to live in. And that's a world that I want to see my kids living in, a world where you do kind things just because it's the right thing to do. Not because you're expecting some sort of monetary or return for it. You just do it because it's the right thing to do, and then you move on. And um, I've been able to to build uh, great relationships throughout my life uh, from the professional world uh, by doing that. I mean, I still have, I, I'm still in contact with people that I worked. Uh, and thank you for the kind words about me. But I assure you, there are people like you, and I'm not saying this to patronize you. People that are thoughtful. That is not weakness. That is strength. People who care for others, that's where we should be. I look at you and I look at others and various people throughout my career and my personal life, and you offer me encouragement. So when those dark days come and I start feeling sorry for myself, as any human adult would do at times throughout their lives, because this idea that everything is happy, well, you do know there's another side. You cannot have happiness without sadness. You cannot have daylight without darkness. Got to accept you're going to have those days. So when you run into people like Ardian for the very first time, and you know there's something special, and you are special, and this isn't a mutual admiration kind of statement, but you are special, and that's what people have mentioned to me. And that's why I'm grateful to you for wanting to be on the show because you bring that kind of energy and you make people feel good about themselves. The other thing, Ardian, people like you and so many others in this world, you're in the boat. Dude, if I can call you dude, because normally if it wasn't this podcast, you know I would call you dude. <laughs> dude, dude. All, you know, all the time. All, all the, the time, time, dude. You're in the boat. Literally, you were in the water with your family. And throughout your travails, the difficulties, and sometimes even the almost impossibilities, you were able to grab hold of that rope that someone had put down for you. They were in the boat, you were in the water. You and your family, you took that rope and you climbed in. And at the same time, the people in the boat, they were helping to pull you in as you were climbing. What you're doing now, because you're in the boat, you're letting that rope down to somebody else. And that's what life is supposed to be about. It's not supposed to be an anomaly or something strange. Now, with that said, now we're going to transition because we're going to get ready to close our show here. But I'm going to ask the question that I always <laughs> ask of my guests. Metaphorically speaking, what keeps you up at night? Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that concerns me greatly is that... Um, I worry that as we're heading forward, that we're, we're losing some of our, our basic rights that we should never give up, such as like the freedom to, to speak freely and uh, things, of, th things of that nature. And um, I just worry that with the spread of technology right now, uh, just living in, in a whole new century right now where technology pretty much controls everything, is that we're losing that human feeling, the human touch that we have with one another. 
and we're becoming more and more closed in and we're growing more and more suspicious of others without um, any, without probable cause or what, without, without any facts. We're growing suspicious of people. We're growing suspicious of people because of the way they look, maybe the way they speak, where they come from. Uh, and we're always unjustly looking at people. And, and that, that really concerns me. And I mentioned earlier, one of the most troubling things for me um, in my day-to-day interaction sometimes with whoever people out there is that you do something kind and you just do it because it's the right thing to do. But you get questioned as to why you're doing it, as if there's supposed to be some kind of a hidden agenda or motive behind it. That is something that really concerns me. And that's something that I somehow have to find within myself. I have to like plan strategically, think of ways that I can help change that somehow, uh, some way in, in, in the workplace where I'm at, whatever assignments I might go to, uh, to change those, those, those little things. Because those things... Very good point, indeed. Uh, that's the human spirit that you have that we hope will continue to catch on like wildfire. Again, here we go. Here's the last question, dude. Metaphorically <laughs> speaking. <laughs> what gives you hope for the next day when the sun is supposedly going to shine? Metaphorically speaking. <laughs> Metaphorically like speaking. Um, <laughs> a lot of things give me hope when I see anyone out there striving to do better. Um, and there's so many great examples of that. People just w- wanting to to be better and do better. Um, it gives me hope to to know that I am fully committed uh, to make positive changes out there in the world wherever I go. Having wonderful people like yourself, you know, being a part of my journey, uh, that gives me hope. Um, having supportive people in in my family supporting you and wanting you to to do well. That's also a big thing uh, for me. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Those are words that are quite deep and profound. My special guest today was Artie Maloku, 30-something. We won't give away your age. Uh, He is now with the U.S. Department of State, but he's made it as a refugee, and now he's coming into the diplomatic class, which is very profound considering the complications that you had to overcome, including the language issues and relations and cultural adjustments that you've had to make. So this is really a wonderful story, another success story. So I do wish you the best and thank you for being a guest on my show today. Thank you for listening to today's episode. As always, you can listen and subscribe to It's Not All Bad wherever you download your podcasts. 